Now, Father, we pray that you would bless through the teaching of your word. Uh, We come here as a people that are so programmed into the thinking of this world, and we need a jolt. We need every week to hear your truth, to remind us of what really is and what is to come. And so use this even this day to that end. And we'll give you thanks in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You know the term theist. Theos means God. Those that are theist believe in a God. Those who are ah, non-theist, atheist as we call them, would say they do not believe in God. If we believe in God, theos, then we have a theology. It's the study of God. We have a theology as it relates to each aspect of life. It may be a good theology. It may be a very poor theology. But some way we see how the creator designer would relate to all things. And so what we do is we form a theology. A theology, the way we think, will in an incredibly major way impact the way we live. The scriptures say as a man thinks, so is he. So theology is very important. We're in a series in the book of Revelation, and and we're going to have an opportunity of looking at a church, one of seven churches that's being addressed early in the book of Revelation, where they are suffering in a very, very intense way. And we're going to be able to see a theology of suffering. I wonder, what is your theology of suffering? Meaning, what do you really believe when suffering hits, when when those cold winds begin to blow of suffering? And they turn into such a a seemingly unbearable blizzard. What do you think about suffering? If you knew that you could compromise and by doing so eliminate suffering, at what point would you do that? Or would you say, I'm in it for the long haul because of what I believe? Beliefs dictate so much. We're going to have the opportunity today to to build a wardrobe. And I I talk about this a lot through the years of of having a wardrobe of suffering. Are we going to have something when the hard times come where we can go to the closet, pull out that good biblical theology of suffering, wrap up in it, and though it's still awfully cold, we can survive because we got a good wardrobe. Or would we say, uh, wardrobe's kind of thin, it's kind of bare, I don't know. I don't know how I'd handle the deepest of suffering. Our series is entitled, Everything is Going to Be All Right. If you missed the first two of the introduction to this message, which was literally called an introduction to the revelation, I would encourage you, get those two, because that lays a foundation for where we're going in this series. It's a series on chapters one through five only, The focus is going to be on chapters 4 and 5, and everything else is going to prepare us and lead up to it. We're going to touch those two chapters, Easter and the week prior to Easter, chapter 4, then chapter 5, and it is a glorious text, I'm telling you. You want to believe from God's perspective, you want to understand why everything is going to be all right, you go to Revelations 4 and 5. You'll see why. But my question was this, as I began to prepare, why plop chapters 2 and 3 
between chapter 1, a glorious revelation of the person of Jesus Christ, and then chapters 4 and 5, which is where we see the ultimate reason why everything will be all right. Why these chapters? Seven epistles to seven churches that represent the church historically throughout time in all places. Here's the reason. Important to know this. The churches then were no different than us today. Their struggles then, no different than our struggles right now. They're struggling with moral compromise. They're struggling with persecution from the world. And they're struggling to stay faithful and to be comforted, to be without fear as they live life in the world as it existed. That's the same challenge that you and I are having. There's some differences in the types of persecution. Certainly there's intense and ours not. But you tell me that we're not suffering today. You tell me that there aren't many of us right now that are seated here saying, I just don't see that everything can be all right in my world. To me, it's crumbling. It's falling apart. There's nothing good. It's all going to be bad. And here comes a writing of revelation to be handed to Christians to say, look at this carefully because this is your comfort. This is what's going to convince you that everything is going to be all right. We're in the second letter. This is to a church in Smyrna, as it's called. Uh, Smyrna is in uh, present-day Turkey. Uh, it was known as the ornament of Asia at that time. Uh, it was a rival city to Ephesus that we looked at la at the uh, last message in Revelation. And it, this was a great city in the world's perspective. A godless city. I mean godless. Known for its three great temples to three of the the gods of the world of that day. In addition to those temples, they had temples that were erected for all the various um, leaders, the Roman leaders and so forth of the day. And I, I'm telling you, it was just a place of pagan worship. And the people of the day, and especially the Jewish people that were in the communities, began to come down hard on the Christians, and there was intense, intense persecution. And so Jesus introduces himself in chapter 1, and then he says, Now, listen to what I have to say to the seven churches. And so we begin in verse 8 of chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. Beginning in verse 8, Revelation 2. And to the angel to the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead has come alive, says this. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Christian, this is the Word of God. This is truth. Let's dig into it. I took the text and saw so many things. I, I cannot in one teaching really do a, a service to all the 
the insights that we could gain from the text. And so I put out a number of them. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to comment on the first five. I mean, literally, read it, make a comment, read it, make a comment. And then we're going to dig into six, seven, and eight, particularly number six. Seven and eight won't take long, but six, I think, is a very important, critical teaching for us. So let's follow and, uh, and see where this leads us, all right? Number one... Out of verse 8, Jesus is the first and the last and has overcome death. You're going to find throughout the seven teachings that Jesus is going to give a self-description and the self-description will in some way relate to what he's saying to the church. He's saying, this is what's true of you and therefore you need to understand what's true of me because what's true of me is going to impact you in your time, your situation, your need, whatever it may be. And what he's saying here is, I am the first and the last. And then he says, I was dead, but I was made alive. You see, at the very end of this teaching, in verse 10, he's going to say this, fear not. Don't be afraid. And then he says, you endure to the end. You endure, which we'll find out in a minute means literally to your death, not until you die. You endure. And I will give you a crown of life. We're going to look at that, what the crown is in just a minute. But obviously, this is talking about in the heavenlies. And he's saying, you're going to die, but you're not going to die. Because I did not die and remain dead. I died. I rose again. I'm in the heavenlies. I'm going to take care of you. Number two, we move quickly. Number two. Believers' tribulation and needs are no surprise to Jesus. Look at verse 9. It begins, I know your tribulation and your poverty. You know, that's an important teaching just for us to realize that Jesus, now he's in the heavenlies as he's writing this or as he's giving it to John, to the angel for the church. He's in the heavenlies. He says, you know what? I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. Now, their poverty was brought about because of their belief. It was noted that in Smyrna at that time, Christians were being taken out of their occupations as soon as they became a Christian. I mean, the persecution would begin and say, you're unemployed. If you're going to be one of those, then you're out of here. They had no income, and so the church was very poor. And he says, I know your tribulation. I know the pain that goes with poverty. And you probably are feeling right now like some of us right now. Well, God must not have any clue. He must not care. He must not know. Why is God so far from me? And his word to us, got to believe it. He says, I know your tribulation. I know your pain. You know what I find very interesting in this text? If you look at the seven letters, five of them are rebuke. They are rebukes from Jesus to the sinful condition of the church. Now, the others, many of them are doing quite well otherwise, but spiritually, they're doing very poorly. Here's a church that is doing very good spiritually. There is no rebuke whatsoever, but they're having incredible tribulation and problems. I mean, truthfully, how many of us, when we're going through the hardest of times, have this thought, the little, the little rip in our garment of our theology of suffering, and, and we say to ourselves, what is it I've done wrong? Where is my, what have, I, what have I got to confess? What is it? 
I can't tell you the number of people that go through intense suffering and pain and contact me and say, please help me understand what is it that I've done? I've searched my heart. I cannot think, but there must be something. And I say, why has there got to be something wrong? Well, because look at the problems I'm going through. Look at the pain. Look at the suffering. And I'd say to them, look at Smyrna. Here's a church that was so obedient. Not one word of rebuke, but the deepest of tribulation. Ah, but we're going to see something in just a minute when we come to number six. We're going to understand why. Let's look at number three. In the world, there are poor, rich people, and there are rich, poor people. Now, he's just said, I know your poverty. And then he says the very next words, but you are rich. I know that in the world, you're poor. But in relationship to me, you are rich. You are rich in grace. You are rich in glory. You're rich in the things that really, really count. Important for Christians to know that. We can look at human circumstances, tribulations, whatever they may be, and say, oh, look at my poor condition. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. You think of the bigger picture. You're really rich. If in Christ you have the treasures of heaven. Let me pause here because I know this is... You know, when, we, when you're going through pain, we think differently, do we not? We think naturally. It, it takes that which is supernatural to, to push us out of thought patterns. I alluded to it in my prayer as we began, but we really are just being pressed by the world with all the belief systems and the thoughts, and, and we read circumstances of life and interpret them the way they appear to be, and, and, and we're just bombarded everywhere we go to say things that aren't true. And it's not that, okay, I'll read what is true, and bingo, got it, no problem now. But do you understand how important it is that we immerse ourselves in the truth of God so that we hear the truth and we hear the truth and we hear the truth and then we have to be in the world and we see what the world has to say. We hear what it has to say. We feel what it says. But then we've got this memory over here and we go back and let me hear it one more time. I've got to remember this. got to remember it. And then we go back over here and oh, oh, oh do I really believe? Okay, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. And then we come back. I, I got, let me tell you folks, we've got to go back to the truth. Because the truth is that what we feel in life about our suffering, our tribulation, our poverty, is not necessarily what is. It's really what appears to be. In the grand scheme of things, from God's perspective, which needs to become more and more our perspective. So he says, you really are rich. Look at number four. People are not always what they think and say they are. He says, not only do I know of your poverty, but I also know of the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. They're really worshipers of Satan. Let me ask you this. If you were to find one of these people who say they're Jews and they're not, by the way, we don't know, are these, are these literal Jews only that they, they're of the, the natural lineage of Abraham and therefore they're Jewish people? Or are these the people that are circumcised to become Jews? He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, we read, but those that are inwardly Jews. You know, it's a big debate. It's hard to tell from the text. 
I lean to the thought that these are those of the natural lineage of Abraham and consider themselves therefore Jews. But he's saying, you know, you're not really Jewish people. Jewish people are, are the people that, that I think of as my family that are worshipers of me. You're not worshipers of me. You're in the synagogue where you worship of Satan. You're really worshiping Satan. Now think about this. If you were to go to one of those people in real history and walk up to them and say, uh, are you a worshiper of Satan? What do you think they'd say? They'd say, absolutely not. I worship Jehovah. I am a Jewish man. I am a Jewish woman. I am a, I'm a worshiper of God. God shows his perspective and says, no, they're not. How many people do you and I know who say, I'm a Christian? And you wonder, are they really Christian? We have to be careful. Let me tell you, when parents, children, friends say they're Christians, we can't judge the heart. We don't know. But Jesus said, here's how you do find out. You shall know them by their fruits. Check their hearts out. Watch their lifestyle. See how they think. See where their passions are. See where their real love is. You'll be able to tell then. But just know this, for some of us here, watch our own hearts. Those that we love. I've watched so many parents that say, oh, my children are Christian, I'm going to treat them as Christians, and I'll just assume they are, and I'm glad that I can feel that way because they say they pray to prayer, and I guess they're Christians. Good. We do our children no service to do that. All we need to do is say, oh, God, let me see fruit. That's what makes the decision. Number five, I like this. Jesus does not sugarcoat how painful life can be under his rulership, but informs us that even during such hardships, there is no need to fear. No need to fear. Look at verse 10. It begins, do not fear for what you're about to suffer. And he's going to go on to say what you're going to suffer is one, imprisonment, and number two, death, martyrdom. Now, you know, it's interesting that you don't find Jesus ever using, you know, a, a get-out-of-jail-free type of card to entice people to come to him. You never hear him say, you come to me and watch how good things will be in life. He never says that. He even says of Paul, his great servant, I mean the greatest of all servants. He says in Acts chapter 9, I will show him how much he must, what, you know? Suffer for my sake. Ah, wow. I just didn't, he didn't try to entice people by sugarcoating the picture. In fact, in the text here, he speaks, he says, I know what you're going through, and I know this, that you're about to be imprisoned, and I know this, that you're about to die. It's going to happen. And then he says, but don't fear. Now, come on, let's be honest. If somebody were to tell you you're arrested and you're going to jail for the rest of your life, you're separated from your family, you'll probably never see them again, you're going to be mistreated forever, you're going to be brutally treated, in fact. Can you imagine saying, okay, no fear, no problem, let's go. I don't think that's where I would be. If somebody said, you know, we're going to put you to death right now, unless you deny your faith in Jesus, we're going to put you to death and we're going to do it through torture. 
I don't, I don't know that I'd walk in that and say, oh, no problem. But let me ask you this. Is it possible to have no fear? Yes, it is. Oh, I believe it is. I don't think he'd tell us to do something we couldn't do. Boy, it would take incredible faith. It would take an incredible wardrobe built up over the years. I mean an incredible wardrobe. There was a man who was the bishop of Smyrna. His name, Polycarp. You ever heard that name? A lot of us have heard the name. One of the old church, early church fathers. In fact, Tertullian uh, and Arrhenius, both, and these are original church fathers, the early, early, early church fathers, both give us in history a recording that John, the apostle, appointed Polycarp. I mean, John, one of the 12. He appointed Polycarp to be the bishop over the church there in Smyrna. He was the pastor. Let's call it that. He was martyred, one of the first known martyrs, his story being left for us. It's recorded in history. I want to read you just a little bit of that martyrdom of what happened. And you answer the question, do you think he was afraid? I think not. Listen. He'd been asked to say Caesar is Lord, but he refused. He wouldn't say it. So they brought him to a stadium. They were going to put him to death by lions eating him. The proconsul urged him saying, swear, and I will set you free. Reproach Christ. Polycarp answered, 80 and six years I've served him. He never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? When the proconsul again pressed him, the old man answered, since thou art vainly urgent that I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretend not to know who and what I am, hear me now declare with boldness, I am a Christian. The proconsul didn't like that. So a little later, the proconsul answered, I have wild beasts at hand. And then he said, to these I will cast you. Except you repent, I will cause you to be consumed by fire because you despise the wild beast if you will not repent. Now, you know what happened? Here's the history of what happened. <laughs> they got ready to, to take him to the, to the wild animals. They had him at the stadium. The crowds were gathering, particularly the Jewish people, we read. And he apparently had an attitude, as I read into life, he apparently had an attitude that went, okay, they're just animals. They're not going to bother me. Go ahead. Bring them on. And they didn't see enough fear, so they said, okay, forget that. We're going to burn you at the stake. That'll get you. So Polycarp says, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour. And after a little while, it's extinguished. But are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and the eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why do you tarry? Bring forth whatever you will. You just sensed, as you read that, here's somebody that had an unusually heavy wardrobe, a biblical theology of suffering, and somehow he had bought in over here to the truth, not the world. And he says, you know what? It's going to be just a moment, and I'm at the place of all places I want to be. You're not going to scare me by simply throwing death at me. That's what happens when you get a good theology. 
There's something amazing where you put it on, where otherwise you know you'd be saying, I can't handle it, I can't handle it. And you and I, without the coat on, hear about it. We say, I, I couldn't do it, I couldn't do it, there's no way. But let me tell you, when that coat gets on, when the wardrobe is built up, oh my, what a difference. What a difference. Number six, the devil is the agent responsible for these hardships. But listen to this. Always within God's, what I'm going to call permissive will, a term used through the history of theology, allowed, that is by God, as a means of testing and only for a designated duration. Uh, keep that up so you can look at it a second or you look at it and you're, make sure you, it's long. But let's read the text. Verse 10, it picks up in the second part of the verse. Behold, the devil is about to cast you into prison. Come on now, do you think the devil is going to come and show up in, in some kind of human form? No. Do you think that he's talking about here these people that are acting devilish? No. He's referring to the evil one, Satan. He goes on to say, so that you will be tested. Very important. So that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Now, here's what we think. People get persecuted because they tick off pagan people. You live a certain way they don't like, they're going to come back and hurt you. They don't like it. That's what we see. I think what we're seeing here is a teaching that says, you know, you got to understand this. This is not just between a lost world and you and a conflict that's going on. Go behind the scenes. Get behind the curtains of the front stage, and what you're going to see is there is a war that's waging between God and Satan. And the scriptures make it very clear in the 12th chapter of Revelation. He says, after the evil one is thrown down, it's referring to the time of the death of Jesus and resurrection, not when he was a good angel but came bad, but he says he is thrown down to persecute the church who had given birth to the male child Jesus. There is a persecution that's going on. It's the evil one that's behind all this. And that's what he's saying. You've got to understand, this is a bigger war than simply people against people. Now, the question would be, do you believe in the devil? Now, I would bet if I had a, a, a written opportunity for you to say yes or no, we took a survey, out of this group, 94, 5, 6, 7% would say, I believe in a devil. Now, I ask this question, do you really believe in the devil? Do you see that he is at work in the world in which we live in a very, very real way? I've often said this. If I told you the stories of my own experience where I have had to delve into the world where demonic presence was very obvious, when I'd finish 20, 25 minutes of storytelling... Every one of you would say this. Either there is a real evil one in this world. Or you, Randy, are a bold-faced liar. There would be no in-between. Some of the stories I wouldn't tell. But I'll share this one. I, I think this is one that just gives you a little sample of what I'm talking about. I, I was asked by a, a family a number of years ago, uh, actually a very dear friend uh, uh, of mine, if I would try to help reach their, their uh, daughter's best friend. 
And uh, I talked to the daughter, and I talked to the parents, and they said, I said, well, how would I get with this person? They said, well, why don't you meet her over at our house, and, um, and, you know, it'll be an opportunity. We'll be here, and it'll be appropriate and so forth. And I said, well, that's fine. And so I happened to be there, and, and the young lady, a very attractive lady, young lady shows up, and a uh, single gal, probably in her mid-20s. And she, uh, she started telling me her story. She said, oh, my, my family are witches and warlocks. I mean, for multiple generations. She started telling me stories, and I'm sitting there going, well, are you? Come on. She said, oh, I, I wake up in the night, and my whole bed will slide across the room. I have to get up and move my bed. I see figures in my room. I hear things. I mean, you don't know what's going on in my house by my parents. I mean, a witch and a warlock. Wow. So I said, well, I, you know, the same answer for all problems, you need the gospel. And so I said, I, let me just uh, share you the truth. And I started sharing, and I could tell she's going, I'm interested in this. I could see a real intense interest. And so I got to the end of that, and I said, would you like to bend the knee before Jesus and receive him into your heart? And she looked at me, and she nodded like this, yes. And I said, then let's do this. Let's, let's get on our knees and let's pray. And all of a sudden, she's sitting there and I hear this, <laughs> this is weird. And I said, what are you doing? She says, it's not me. I, I, I'm not trying to do that. She said, there's a voice screaming at me right now. And I'm going, come on. Oh, you should come on. And finally, I said, in the name of Jesus, get up. Now, what had happened was I had gotten on my knees and I'd looked back and I heard this sound and I saw her pushing forward and being violently thrown back. And she'd be pushing forward and she'd finally come back and then she'd come back and be bent back. And I said, what? She said, I can't get up. I want to get up. I can't get up. And that's when I said, in the name of Jesus, get up. And I'm telling you, she fell forward on her face and she prayed let me tell you, that girl radically changed. She is a pastor's wife today. You hear her story, you go, I, I believe there is a real evil world. Well, see, this evil one is testing, but the testing he's doing is tribulation. It's temptation. I'll use those words. On the other hand, there is what I'm going to call testing, the word used in our scriptures. Do you know that the same, the very same activity in your or my experience can be one or the other could be both? It could be just tribulation from the evil one, or it could be both testing that God has brought into our experience. And so the question I know we've got to ask is, well, what is this testing all about? Here it is. The word in order that, it's the hina clause, the word hina in the Greek, and it always means purpose. What is the purpose of this tribulation? And the answer is, so that God may test us. What do you mean? He can use this to show us our sin and unbelief. He uses this to... to erase the illusion that we're in control of our world. He uses problems like that. He uses problems to cause us to run to Jesus and to hang on to Jesus. He says, look, these same issues in your life, know that I've got a hand in what's happening. They're incredible verses, 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7. He says, I know you're distressed by the trials, but know that they are testings for you found to result in praise, glory, and honor. Or in James 1, consider it joy when you encounter various trials. 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, let endurance have its perfect result. You will become perfect, lacking in nothing. So we got this teaching through Scripture of all the stuff the evil one does and then God's plan of how he uses it. And we get confused. Is this from the devil? Is it from God? Let me give you this kind of a grid to think about. I want you to think in terms of three different, um, three different categories, you could call them. Uh, one, singularly, it is only temptation, what I will call tribulation. doesn't matter. It's from Satan. That would be something, now it's not a testing of God, it's just from the evil one. That would include where we have made immoral choices, living with the consequences of it. Uh, we've made unwise, inappropriate, wrong choices. We've done the wrong thing, and God says, you're going to deal with the consequences of that. And let me tell you, this is not to test you. This is the evil one. This is what happens when you live in that world. Whether it be, I wrote down a few things, immoral relationships, stealing from God. How about something minor? Neglect of diet and exercise. Some of us are going through all kinds of physical problems just because we don't take care of our bodies. It says, or, or maybe failure to confront conflict in a biblical way. And so the answer there is just run from it. Repent. Get away from that stuff. That's not a test of God that is trying to, he wants you to be in there. He's saying, no, get out of there. Number two, secondly, what I would call both a temptation from the evil one and attesting from God. And those that you cannot run away from, for instance, disease without cure, irreparable injury to your life. You can't do anything to get rid of those. God may choose to heal you. And he says, know this, this the evil one will use in his desire, but for me it becomes something that I will use for your good. Third category, same thing, both temptation and testing, but you can run from it, but you shouldn't. Persecution? Could Polycarp have said, okay, Caesar is Lord? He could have, but he didn't, and he shouldn't. How about a horrible marriage, but no biblical grounds for divorce? You can say, I'm out of here, and you can run. But God says, do you know that I have a hand in this? I want you to listen to a poem. How, when's the last time I read a poem? I think it was 1983, I believe. <laughs> but listen, it's called The Refiner's Fire. Some of you have heard it. Great poem. Got to be read. Unknown author. Here's how it goes. He sat by the fire of sevenfold heat as he watched by the precious ore. And closer he bent with a searching gaze as he heated it more and more. He knew he had ore that could stand the test, and he wanted the finest gold, a crown, the, uh, to mold as a crown for the king to wear, set with gems of price untold. So he laid our gold in the burning fire, though we fain would have said him nay. And he watched the dross that we had never seen as it melted and passed away. And the gold grew br brighter. And yet more bright, and our eyes were so dim with tears. We saw the fire, not the master's hand, and questioned with anxious fear. Yet our gold shone out with a richer glow as it mirrored a form above that bent o'er the fire, though unseen by us, with a look of infinite love. Can we think that it pleases his loving heart 
to cause a moment of pain? Ah, no. But he saw through the present cross the bliss of eternal gain. So he waited there with a watchful eye, with a love that is strong and sure, and his goal did not suffer a bit more heat than was needed to make it pure. I love that. No more than it needed. You notice our text says for 10 days. That, that's not a real 10 days. That's a definite, specific, yet short period of time. And he says it will be only as long as needed in your life. Look at number seven and eight very quick. I'll just read it and we'll close. Number seven, royalty is enjoyed by those who remain faithful till death. It says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. This is not till life's end. It means literally, even if it causes you to die, be faithful. And then he gives the why. Here's why we don't fear. It's that other side of eternity that we, we got to keep going back over here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, I will give you a crown of life. That could be a crown of victory or it could be a crown of royalty. And everything, if you look at the context, you look at the historical, I can give you five reasons that would have to, I think, push you to believe it is a crown of royalty. Do you know who the crown of life is given to? It's given to those who go to heaven, all of his children. He says, you just stay faithful. And by the way, in the book of Revelation, just note how many times you see the saints in heaven and the martyrs. The saints of heaven and the martyrs. There was something special. They were saints, but they were martyrs. And I think what he's saying here, oh, you've got a crown. You're royalty. Keep in mind, you are royalty. Be faithful. And then number eight, obedience serves as an evidence that one will never experience hell. Look at verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. This is not a teaching of the theology of works. Live a good life, you go to heaven. No. What this is is saying those who are legitimate as Christians. You know how you're legitimate? How you know? You have two types of righteousness. Need to know this. You have a passive righteousness, that which you've received by the work of the cross of Jesus Christ laid upon us as a gift of grace alone. And as a result of that, there is an active righteousness that flows out. If no active righteousness, James says in his book, there is no passive righteousness. If there is passive righteousness, there will be active righteousness. Well, it's hard to feel. How do I know about the passive? Just look for the active. And when you see the act of righteousness, ask the question, what is my motivation? Is it in order that God will love me? Uh-oh, that's not the real deal. No, it's because God loves me. Ah, that's it. Let me close with this. You know the little uh, uh, the, uh, commercial? I don't even know which card it is, but some credit card or something. But it says, uh, what's in your wallet? You seen that? When you leave here, I want you to ask the question and think about this this week. What's in your closet? And I want you to ask as we close, which one of these would you be? One. I'm naked. I have nothing. I'm outside a relationship with Christ. And I'm exposed to the heat of hell forever. And it interesting, he ended verse 11 
with the second death, which means after you die physically, it's the death in an eternal hell. And there are those that are naked. They'll have nothing to defend themselves. Number two, those that are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. They are clothed. But as a result of that, they will never be exposed to the heat of hell. Never. My son and I, when he was walking away from the things of God, we listened to a CD, and it was, I think, entitled 23 Minutes in Hell, a man's experience when he was pronounced dead, whether he was or not, it's not the issue, whether, whether he had a dream or vision or whatever. He was a pagan man, and he experienced hell, came back, was converted to Christ, began to look at his experience and began to find it was rooted in Scripture. Everything he saw was just absolutely what the Scriptures would say. And I tell you, we listened to that, and it gripped my son's heart like nothing else. It gripped my heart. I'm telling you, we sat there in silence when it was over. And here's what we said to each other. If hell is 1,000th as bad as this man described, and you know it's got to be thousands of times even worse, I don't ever, ever, ever want to come close. How do you stay away? It's the clothing of righteousness. It's the work of Christ. Thirdly, those who are in Christ, they're clothed with righteousness, but their wardrobe of suffering, the theology of suffering is very thin. And I'm telling you, the cold winds will come for this person. That's when they'll start saying, what did I do wrong? And they'll start, they'll start thinking, life is hopeless. I have no hope. This is all bad. It's not good. These are the people that begin to compromise when they say, I can run from this even though I shouldn't. And I will eliminate my suffering and I don't care what it takes. I'll get, I'll get rid of my suffering. And then fourthly, the people who have a pretty good little garment of theology of suffering. It's getting such that you're going to be able to go through the winter storms of suffering. It'll be cold. You'll survive. And when you do, you know what you'll say? Everything's going to be all right. The teaching of the book of Revelation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word, we pray. Grant us to have ears to hear what the Spirit says to us. I pray that we would be clothed in your righteousness, if without, right now. Granted by the work of your Spirit. For those of us that are yours, oh God, thank you that we'll never experience the second death. Thank you we'll experience life with you. But while here, Oh, Lord, clothe us well. May we be faithful to build a good wardrobe. And may we be quick to put it on as suffering touches our hearts and lives. Thank you that we can come to you now. We do in the great name of Christ our Savior. Amen.